0: You're listening to Serious Inquiries Only. Hello and welcome to Serious Inquiries Only. This is episode 125. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. All right, today I've got a really fascinating interview for you with Robert S. McIlvain. He is a historian. He teaches at Millsaps College. He is the author of The Great Depression, America, 1929 through 1941. Uh, He's got a, a, a number of other projects as well in the works. But I saw his article in the Washington Post It's called I'm a Depression Historian. The GOP tax bill is straight out of 1929. Republicans are again sprinting toward an economic cliff. Sounds really ominous. Sounds, frankly, quite believable to me. But uh, we'll see what he has to say about that and some other related topics. Really fascinating stuff. Let's get over to it. I'm joined by Dr. Robert S. McElvain. Bob, how are you doing today?
1: Doing fine. How are you, Thomas?
0: I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I I really hope uh, to learn a lot from you today because you are a depression historian. Is that right? At least that's what the Washington Post article you wrote says.
1: (laughs) Well, I've been accused of being a depressing historian. uh, (laughs) uh, For the first few decades of my uh, professional life, I concentrated on the Great Depression, and I've... uh, done five books on the time. So I guess that makes me an expert. I've sort of moved on <laughs> to other areas since then, but I I still recall quite a bit about it, I think.
0: <laughs> good good to hear. I'm sure that means you know something about it. Uh, yes. So I've I am. I've got your article up here. I found it really fascinating. Um, For the Washington Post, uh, the GOP tax bill is straight out of 1929, is the rest of the title. I was wondering if you could take us back a little bit. History is not my strong suit, um, and and maybe we could start with a little bit of history on the depression, what went into it and what caused it, and then we can go on to talk about a, a lot of what the article talks about in terms of where we might be headed there again and what the danger signs would be.
1: Okay, well, I think uh, the best thing to do before getting into the causes of the depression is to talk about uh, one of them, which is basically, at least as I see it, um, the faith that uh, conservatives and Republicans have for well over a century now Mm. put in the absolutely free market as a god. This means that uh, if they let the market simply uh, control everything, that everything will turn out fine. And this uh, finally winds up creating a belief in trickle-down economics. And probably the best uh, uh, expression of the difference between that approach and the approach that the Democratic Party and progressives have generally used is what William Jennings Bryan said in his famous Cross of Gold speech at the Democratic Convention in 1896. He said there are two ideas of government. There are those who believe that if you will only legislate to make the well-to-do prosperous their prosperity will leak through on those below. The democratic idea, however, Brian continued, has been that if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up through every class which rests upon them. Hmm. And so already in the late 19th century, Uh, The Gilded Age, as it was often called, or now many of us call it the first Gilded Age, because we seem to be in another one, was the idea that uh, you just let as much money flow up to the top as possible, and that would eventually help everyone else. Now, you can criticize that morally, as I would, but this became more than a moral problem. It became an economic problem around 1920, when... We shifted into a really mass production economy, and mass production, of course, depends on mass consumption. Uh, If you're producing all this stuff, somebody has to buy it. The concentration of wealth at the very top, uh, we don't really know because there's no way to measure it, but probably was even more in earlier centuries as uh, people had, noblemen had their uh, castles and so Mm -hmm. forth, and there were peasants, and that, again... Uh, you can criticize morally, but it probably didn't make much difference economically because they weren't producing a lot of things that had to be bought by people. But uh, by the time you get to after World War I, uh, the assembly, assembly line production that had begun to be perfected before the war by Henry Ford and others was turning out all sorts of stuff. And in a situation like that, if most of the income is concentrated at the very top, it's simply not going to work in the long run because there aren't people with enough money to buy all the things that are being produced. Somebody who is making vast amounts of money might, for instance, be persuaded to collect cars and buy six or seven of them in a year. But if his share of the uh, income in the nation is such that he would need to buy 500 cars a year to keep the automobile industry going, he's highly unlikely to do that. And so you have a situation in the 1920s where more and more things are being produced uh, in in terms of mass production, automobiles, uh, radios, which were in those days, and wood cabinets and expensive items, increasingly new household appliances. And there simply wasn't enough money going to the masses of people to buy all this stuff. And this, at least in my analysis, is... Not the sole cause, but the most important cause of the Great Depression. As you go on through the 20s, well, I think it's important to uh, to point out that uh, the concentration of income at the really very very top—that is, not the top one percent even, but the top one one hundredth of a percent—peaked in 1928, with roughly six percent of all the income going to the top one one hundredth of a percent it peaked again at almost exactly the same level, of around 6%, in uh, 2007. And in both cases, it was followed a year later by an economic collapse. Now, that could just be coincidence, but given the need for the masses to have enough money to buy what is being produced to keep the economy going, I don't think so. So what happened in the later 20s was that – People, uh, in order to be able to buy these things, they had to be allowed to buy them without being able to come up with the money right away. And so they started installment plans, uh, usually in those days, weekly payments that people would make uh, for automobiles, maybe it would be monthly payments. But in any event, you could buy things without putting up the money right away. And that continued the prosperity of the 20s for a while because all the stuff that was being manufactured could be sold. But it also made it worse when the collapse finally came because you reached a point where these people's credit would run out. <clears throat> and at that point, uh, they wouldn't be offered more things to more credit to buy more things. But also they wouldn't even have their current income, which was not a big enough share of the total income. They wouldn't even have all of that to spend on new purchases because a lot of it was going to pay off their past purchases. And so you, you reach a point. Uh, Before the stock market crash in 1929, by the late summer of 1929, when inventories are building up in uh, warehouses and each uh, separate head of a company uh, does the only sensible thing on the basis of the individual company, if they're not selling all that they're producing, they cut back in production. And when they do that, of course, they lay people off. And so the total demand in the economy goes down. Fewer people are able to buy the stuff that is coming off the assembly lines, and so they cut back more of the assembly lines. More people are laid off, and it becomes this downward spiral, which was already well underway a few months before the stock market crashed in 1929.
0: Wow. I wanted to ask a clarifying question, but I really didn't want to interrupt. But <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I think of a couple of things. I I would have thought of, and it's really surprising to learn. I would have thought of trickle down as a relatively new thing, at least you know, in, in within the last half a century. I had no idea that it was it went back that far. And then another thing that's interesting is I also uh, my conception of the of political parties is that they really shifted in around the sixties and the Southern strategy and all that. But it's interesting to hear that it. It sounds like a hundred years ago, it was still, you know, Republicans were for trickle down and Democrats weren't. Um, that That's really interesting. Is there any well, more well, to that you're, story? You're
1: uh, totally right about the shift in the 1960s in terms of some very important issues, particularly on race. Hmm. Um, you know, a lot of Republicans these days will say, well, the Democrats were the party of slavery and uh, Jim Crow and all that. Well, that's true. Uh, but what happened in the 1960s was that the parties switched. And uh, you can just see that in terms of the solid South that used to be all Democratic. And by the time you get into the 70s and 80s, it's all Republican. In fact, uh, I, I was noticing when Doug Jones won the Senate race in Alabama, it struck me to uh, look at who were the senators in other former Confederate states. And if you exclude Florida, which is as much north as the South, uh, every Confederate state south of Virginia, all the way out to Texas, had two Republican senators, and now Alabama has the only Democratic senator in that whole area. So, what yeah, was which once took the, a
0: miracle to, for that to happen. It took. It a, took a miracle.
1: Yeah. It, 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 it took the worst possible candidate. I don't know we want to call pedophilia yeah. <laughs> a miracle, but uh, <laughs> yes. So you're absolutely right about the the switch of the parties. Uh, basically, the party of white supremacy during the 1960s, changed its name from Democrat to Republican. Mm. But on these economic issues, that's not the case at all. It's been pretty steady. The the Republicans, most progressives in the uh, first two decades of the 20th century were Republicans, but also the party was solidly the party of big business, and you can see that again in what Brian was talking about as far back as 1896, I'm not sure the actual term trickle down may be more recent, oh, okay. but you just take Brian's words and that translates to trickle down, saying that their prosperity would leak through on those below them.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, another question I had, I think you already pretty much answered it, but I think it's a pretty fundamental one, which is I was going to ask you, because uh, in the article when, and when we look at this tax bill and we think, OK, yes, economic inequality is awful. And I, I, you know, I think that's a whole separate issue apart from an economic crash that is as you have outlined morally we should we should deal with but would the republican line of thinking be what is the is there a necessary connection between economic inequality and some sort of crash like is it possible to have a stable Economy with this much inequality.
1: Well, as I was alluding to before, if you want to go back into the Middle Ages or something, uh, but in a uh, an economy that's dependent on mass consumption, I don't think there's any way it can work. It can work in the short run, uh, particularly a, a massive tax cut. Um, you know, Trump. Claims this was the biggest tax cut in history, and it was something like the eighth biggest tax cut in history. Yeah, I, I hear some but,
0: secretaries are getting a, an extra dollar fifty a week. So it's, it's yeah, that pretty... was
1: that was wonderful. In <laughs> fact, I was sure that uh, the woman was being sarcastic, and I just read something this morning where she said he didn't read the whole article, Paul uh uh, it was sarcastic, you know. I'm getting a dollar fifty a week extra. I can pay for my Costco uh, membership. Talk
0: about <laughs> right out of the Depression era that that would have been pretty cool uh, back in the 30s. Extra dollar fifty. Yeah. Week. So I,
1: I I mean back to what you were just asking mm-hmm. me about. I don't think uh, that there's any way that that can for more than a, a period of a few years uh, work. The thing is, a big tax cut adds a lot of stimulus to the economy. Um, because, well, uh, uh, an example of this would be uh, the Reagan tax cuts in the 1980s. Um, they provided a great deal of stimulus, but it wasn't this magic of supply-side economics. It was straightforward Keynesianism. That is, if you uh, have big deficits, that's going to stimulate the economy. For a book I was writing at the time, I was interviewing a lot of um, political folks, and um, I talked to Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas later in the... Democratic vice presidential nominee, and he said, well, of course you've got stimulus in the economy. You can't write $200 billion of hot checks a year and not have stimulus. Uh, And what we're seeing uh, now with this new tax cut is uh, well over a trillion dollars a year of hot checks, Mm -hmm. almost all of which is going to the people at the very top. And in the short run, uh, that is probably going to provide enough stimulus to keep things going. But uh, if you look at history, and not just the Depression, but every time there's been a real concentration at the top and trickle-down economics and deregulation, uh, it leads to collapse after a few years. Wow. Uh, Also, my reading
0: of uh, the—or I guess my my understanding of the crash that we just experienced in, you know, 07, 08, 09, all that— Is that it was maybe more particular to a failure of regulation in you know subprime mortgages and all that stuff? Is that something do do you see it as more particular to that set of circumstances, or do you is it encompassed in your theory as uh, more examples of like so much inequality that that the market can't sustain itself?
1: Well, both. I I mean, the the Republican idea of Again, worshiping uh, the market like with a capital M as God, you simply can't interfere, uh, includes deregulation uh, as well as uh, using tax policy and other policy to concentrate uh, most of the income and wealth at the top. So it, both both are part of this uh, worship of the market. And that, that whole idea is so ridiculous that um, we should just have laissez-faire, we should leave hands off. Uh, the market let nature take its course, because we're talking about an economy uh, and our whole way of life that is about as far removed from nature as you could get. And to say that that human intervention is automatically a bad thing, you should just let the market do what it will and everything will be fine. Well, we certainly don't do that in other areas like uh, I, I live in Mississippi, not all that far from New Orleans. And uh, I think building levees around New Orleans is a good idea rather than letting nature take its course on something like that. And so <clears throat> obviously you can have too much regulation, you can have too much government interference, but the idea that you don't need any uh, just seems to me to be absurd. And you you let people um, – you say that people should uh, be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, that's a wonderful idea. You hear it all the time, and people have been saying it for over oh, a century. Uh, the thing is, when you think about it, um, I actually, in, in uh, one of my courses, uh, when we get to talking about these sorts of things, uh, try to find somebody who is wearing boots and have little straps on the side, and, which would usually, usually be a female, and ask her to come up and pull herself up by her bootstraps. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can pull up one leg, but you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and i just found it fascinating that the most common expression for what poor people should do is actually a physical impossibility
0: <laughs> i thought that i thought that was the whole joke but maybe <laughs> are there people who use it uh, earnestly and uh, maybe i was reading in that wrong the whole time
1: No, I mean, it's not intended as a joke at all. When people say it, they say, oh, you know, you should be self-reliant. But the way they put it is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, my gosh. Well, my mind
0: is blown. I thought that was on purpose. I thought that was a joke. Of course you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Man, and I don't think
1: most people even <laughs> even stop to think about that. Wow. No, they say it quite seriously. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you know, I I've been doing some research. I've covered uh, at least done my my best, uh, not being an expert. But I was looking into uh, economic inequality throughout the years, and one thing I stumbled a- across was just how high taxes were in the fifties. And I'm wondering if if you could tell us any more about that. I mean, when people want to go back, you know, make America great again, and all that. Why don't we at least take one positive thing, which was the economy and inequality were much better by the measures I've seen, uh, as in things were more equal, the economy was still good at a time of really high taxes. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. Well, uh, uh, when the Depression did hit and then uh, finally when Franklin Roosevelt became president and he famously said when he was running uh, for the presidency in 1932, uh, take a method and try it. If it doesn't work, throw it out and try something else. But above all, try something. And so this pragmatic approach was what the New Deal was based on. Uh, the Republican idea, which was Hoover's idea at the time and basically remains the Republican idea is take the method because they think there is only one, this idea of deregulation and and making the rich richer. If it doesn't work, try it again. If it doesn't work, try it again. If it doesn't work, try it again. (laughs) But uh, above all, keep trying the same thing. So the new deal, um, it's interesting. Mitch McConnell, um, After Obama became president uh, in 2009 and was proposing uh, a big stimulus to try to get out of the economic disaster he inherited, uh, McConnell said history uh, teaches us uh, things. And one of the things it teaches us is that um, uh, big deficits uh, don't solve economic problems because the Depression was still going on. Uh, At the end of uh, Roosevelt's second term, after the whole New Deal, uh, this this deficit spending hadn't ended the Depression. He said World War II ended the Depression. Well, that was correct, except it totally uh, undermined his whole argument because the reason World War II ended the Depression is they stopped worrying about deficits and just spent (laughs) massively. And in so doing, stimulated the economy, eliminated unemployment, and uh, uh, they, they raised taxes during World War II up to, I think, 96 percent was the top marginal rate. <clears throat> and that wasn't reduced that much after the war. It was, uh, as you were alluding to before, uh, during the 1950s and the Eisenhower years, the top marginal rate was around 89 or 90 percent. And uh, while I would not advocate a rate anywhere near that high, it does show that prosperity uh, was not stopped by a tax rate that high. But the the middle decades of the 20th century saw far more government regulation of the economy, the New Deal, World War II, and and most of that regulation continued through the 50s and 60s and and into the early 70s. And uh, as a result of that, the economy was more under control and also the uh, gap in uh, income between those at the top and the rest of the people – while well, certainly there was still a significant gap, was much less than it was in the 1920s and started to become again uh, from the late 70s uh, down mostly to the present. And with that uh, spreading out of the, uh, the money, uh, Obama, when he was running for office, uh, got into trouble with some people when he said we should spread the money around a little bit more. But uh, that, again, is, is a morally good thing, but it's also necessary economically. And when it was spread around a little bit more equally, partly through high tax rates on the rich, um, the United States saw the rise of the strongest uh, middle class in the history of the world. And it's been uh, in the years since it's been concentrating more at the top and there's been less regulation then we've started going back in the other direction.
0: Yeah, and it does seem like there's a, an alternative history. Well, I guess there always has to be when you're talking about Republicans trying the same thing over and over, but <laughs> there's sort of an alternative history, which is like it, it was Reagan that that built that middle class. But uh, it sounds like, you know, what are, what are the kinds of things that led to the down. Fall of that middle class was it largely Reaganomics? Was that what did it?
1: Well, I, uh, Reaganomics certainly played a part. Uh, the, the whole idea, uh, what was called supply side economics, <clears throat> excuse me, was um, uh, another name pretty much for the same idea. The idea of supply side economics was if you uh, create a supply of something, that automatically Um, creates the demand for it, say's law from an economist named Say um, uh, back in the 19th century. Maybe it was in the 18th century, I don't remember. Um, And that really isn't true because if the people don't have the money to buy the thing, uh, it's not going to work. But that was the idea. You just concentrate on creating more stuff and people will be able to buy it and everything will be fine. But um, the first two years of Reagan's presidency saw the closest thing in terms of the level of unemployment to a new depression uh, since the 1930s. Unemployment peaked at, I think, around 11 or 12% uh, by the second year of the Reagan administration. And it was at that point that uh, the huge deficits that were created by his tax cuts started kicking in and and helped bring things back somewhat. Uh, He had said during the 1980 campaign, that uh talking about how terrible everything was and we had to get away from the failed policies of the past and then when he was running for re-election in 1984 one of his slogans was America's back i remember uh, writing in a couple of articles at the time pointing out that yes America's back to where it was in 1980 it's just that it had gotten so much worse in between it was now on the rise again and was only back to what he had denounced as the failed policies of the past when he was first running so that, too, uh, uh, resulted in a uh, not an economic collapse, but a, a very serious stock market crash in 1987. And I think the main reason why that didn't go into a new depression as it happened after 1929, at least as I see it, is that uh, in the 20s, people had been kind of persuaded to get away from their traditional values of uh never going into debt if they could avoid it and then only buying what they absolutely needed and, and go into debt to buy a house but not anything else. And advertisers kept uh, telling them, oh no, this is uh, the the uh, age of eternal sunshine. You know, the, the, there'll never be another rainy day. Uh, if you want it, just go ahead and buy it if you can get credit for it. So when that all collapsed, Those traditional ideas weren't that far removed in people's minds and they retrenched a great deal, uh, which certainly didn't help the economy, but it was a sensible thing for them to do as individuals. Uh, However, uh, by the time of the 1987 economic collapse... We had been living with a sort of, oh, go ahead whenever you get the urge, buy something. And people were so accustomed to buying whatever they wanted that it was only a matter of weeks before uh, purchasing was back pretty much the way it had been before the October 87 uh, collapse. So uh, that didn't Mm -hmm. result in the same thing. But if you look at um, the rise in the concentration of wealth and income Again, finally getting up to the point in 2007 where it had been in 1928. Uh, that comes, uh, that starts directly at the time of uh, of Reagan, uh, mm-hmm. starting the year before 1979. But in in the 70s, uh, just as an example of how things have changed so radically, the average CEO compensation was around 35 times that of the average worker statistic I saw the other day is it's about 250 times the uh, average worker now. And there have been times in the last few years, and depends on what industry you look at, where it's over 300 or even 400 times out of the average worker. Again, I don't see how that can be justified morally, but also it doesn't work economically.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you think we can do about that? I mean, I when I've debated Republicans on this, uh, I remember specifically one argument I encounter is because I I would make a moral case for it. You know, this this can't be how, what we want, right? We can't want this level of economic inequality, and the Republican line seems to be well, it's inevitable. But like is it inevitable, and what are what could we be doing? I guess higher taxes is one thing we've already touched on. Is there anything else?
1: Yeah, higher higher taxes uh, for sure and 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 more steeply graduated taxes uh, a, a good example of this, and it's uh, it was uh, not really graduated anywhere near enough, but uh, Bill Clinton, in his uh, 1993 budget, proposed a modest increase in the top marginal rate from 36% to 39 point, I think it was 6%. And every Republican in Congress voted against it. All of the free market economists, the trickle down economists said it would lead to economic disaster. And instead it was followed by one of the greatest periods of prosperity in American history. And ultimately by the last two years of Clinton's administration, uh, by eliminating the budget deficit entirely and having a surplus, which... When Clinton had come into office, it seemed like something that was totally impossible and never would be seen again. And so that again showed that uh, the opposite of what the Republicans believe in as a matter of faith is true. But then when the George W. Bush administration came in, they went right back, uh, cut the uh, top marginal rate again. also uh, started doing a variety of other things and deregulation, some of which had actually passed at the end of the Clinton years. He, he doesn't escape some respons- responsibility for that um, and wound up uh, uh, turning things around uh, very quickly. The deficits were rising again. <laughs> An interesting... Uh, fact that most people would not be aware of because the republicans are always seen as the champions or at least they had been until recently of yeah. fiscal responsibility the only times that there have has been an increase in uh, the national debt as a percentage of gdp under democrats over the last 80 years was in response to three big national emergencies the great depression world war ii And the 2008 economic collapse, uh, There's a big increase in debt as a percentage of GDP in the first couple of years of Obama to deal with that. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, uh, have very notably twice in the past, and they seem to be doing it again, have greatly increased uh, the um, uh, ratio of uh, debt to GDP, not when there was any huge economic crisis, but under Reagan- under George W. Bush and now under Trump, and in each case, the purpose was not to deal with a national emergency, but just to give more money to the rich,
0: yeah, is it it's hard to know who's what motivations everyone has, but there's got to be some element of it's all bullshit, and obviously they know it's not going to do anything. It's just in their best interest to have taxes be lower, but also, is there there are the people who want to take the like starve the beast mentality. And it's just that they are, I guess, are never able to cut spending enough to compensate for these gigantic uh, tax reductions. What do you make of that? I mean, I guess it wouldn't, would a Republican say, well, ideally, you know, I would want to lower taxes, but also just cut, you know, government spending so much that it wouldn't end up creating an increase in in the deficit?
1: Yes, that's what they say, and that was uh, certainly the plan, uh, not, I think, of Reagan himself, but uh, of some of his advisors, uh, was that, uh, that they actually didn't believe in this voodoo economics, as uh, George H.W. Bush had called it, um, or uh, John Anderson uh, in 1980, when uh, Reagan was promising to start off with the uh, the big deficit he was inheriting, cut revenues drastically by reducing taxes, increase spending on the military enormously, and maintain the social safety net, and somehow this was supposed to produce a balanced budget. Um, I I wrote at the time that uh, the only possible plan he could have was a constitutional amendment to repeal arithmetic. Um, But the the idea, uh, uh, he thought this was going to work. Uh, but I don't think most of his advisors did. They thought it was going to do what it did, create a massive deficit, and then they would use that as an excuse to cut social programs, which is exactly what many of them want to do now. Paul Ryan has dreamed since he was an adolescent of destroying the welfare state and clearly sees the deficits that are coming with the current tax cut as an excuse to do that.
0: Yeah, well, one note, I think Trump just used an executive order to to destroy arithmetic. I don't think he bothered waiting <laughs> Yes.
1: <laughs> that was probably uh, and, in one of them. And then he would sign it and hold it up for everybody to <laughs> say, like, kindergarten homework.
0: Yeah. If he remembered to sign it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a couple that I think he just forgot. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. So... Um, but I guess back to the question though, like it, what are what are some of the other things? I, I think we got a little sidetracked. But what could we be doing to reduce income inequality? Is how how much of a social safety net? I mean, historically, I mean, can, is there any comparison? Like the best? Are, are we are we at an all time low for that? Are we at an all time high? Are we somewhere in the middle?
1: Well, somewhere in between, but certainly nowhere near the all time high. And uh, again, what 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 the uh, you mentioned earlier about going back to the 1950s, and they don't think at all about what the tax rates were in the 1950s. The idea of Make America Great Again uh, clearly was to go back to the 1950s, but that's to go back uh, to a situation I'd I like to point out while the 1950s might look great on <clears throat> old uh black-and-white uh, sitcoms that people uh, see still in reruns. Uh, the 1950s were not so great if you happen to have a second X chromosome or more pigmentation in your skin than the average white person. And <clears throat> But that's really the thing they are talking about in going back to the 1950s. Uh, I think the Republican Party, since about 1968, has been basically running as the anti-60s party to repeal Everything that happened in the 60s, including uh, civil rights and uh, advances uh, for women, didn't so much start in the 60s, but right after that, of slow advances for gays, uh, but also all the great society programs, get rid of all that and go back to the good old 1950s. But somebody like Ryan and, and many other Republicans now in terms of repealing social legislation, they, they want to get rid of uh, social security or almost get rid of it, repeal the New Deal as well, go back to the 1920s. Better yet, why don't we go back to uh, the days of William McKinley when there were no income taxes? Uh, uh, they are, they call themselves conservatives, but they should be called regressives. They want to regress to these other periods. And as far as... Uh, fighting against the uh, extreme concentration of wealth and income at the top, uh, there are clear things that can be done. And one of them is through tax policy. Um, another one as far as wealth rather than income, very clearly is uh, the inheritance tax, which they were trying in this latest tax bill to repeal entirely, which would have been an amazing giveaway to the super rich. Um, they only succeeded in raising the uh, uh, a limit at, at which the federal estate uh, tax starts to uh, uh, 20 million dollars. but that uh, still means that the uh, uh, people who, are, uh, who have huge huge amounts of money uh, are getting it cut back somewhat. But if you eliminate it entirely, which is clearly what the Republicans want to do, you would basically be creating an hereditary aristocracy in the United States. Um, going against one of the principles of the American Revolution. Uh, These people who would uh, not have the money taxed are not contrary to the Republican tagline for it of the death tax. It's not the dead who are paying the taxes. The dead pay no taxes. It's their heirs who – Uh, did nothing other than choose wealthy parents or wealthy Mm. people they inherit from to deserve it. And it totally goes against the whole argument for the free market, which is that it creates a meritocracy that people get what they deserve. Well, somebody uh, who um, picks up the the fumble in the form of an inheritance at uh, the opponent's team uh, one-yard line uh, and can take it over is uh, has a bit of an advantage, or I guess a better way to put it would be in a 100-meter dash. Uh, the person who starts at the 99-meter <laughs> mark has quite an advantage over the one who starts uh, at the beginning of the race. And so <clears throat> the only thing that, that makes any sense, if you want to argue for meritocracy, is basically to take away all of that. I mean, you'd have to, just for practical political purposes, allow uh, inheritance people who have a modest amount of money. But as far as the super rich, uh, none of it should be passed along in inheritance if you really want to make an argument that it should be a totally free market and, and a meritocracy.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I'm still kicking myself for the parents I chose. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah.
1: I, I chose really good parents, but not in terms of wealth. So. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> well, Smart. I agree with you. And I, I see a strong case morally for why this this should be so. But I think that one one problem that we have in in this argument is just this return to like fundamental principles you know and i think conservatives are good at painting it as like rights you know like i why what gives the government the right to take way more from me or my estate than they would from someone with less money how do you respond to that kind of thinking
1: well uh, there was uh uh One of the um, wealthy business people who supported the New Deal, uh, many of them turned against it pretty quickly uh, after the economy got off the absolute doormat when Roosevelt came in. At at first, they kind of were willing to go along with it because they were so desperate, but then they started turning against Mm. it. But uh, Edward uh, Filene of Filene's Department Stores in Boston uh, was a pro-New Deal businessman, and he said, uh, well, why shouldn't the American people take some of my money from me? Me, I took all of it from them. And uh <laughs> I, I think that that makes some sense. Um plus, of course, the things that the money is is going for to keep the country going well, to defend it and all of that, uh, those people have much more to be defended. Um but but also, you know, not only do do they uh make the argument, well, we, we should be able to keep this because we earned it. The, the, the word earned when you're talking about people making hundreds of millions of dollars a year just doesn't seem to me to be an accurate term. They they get it somehow, but I don't think anybody earns that much money, particularly when you're not talking about somebody who came up with a, a new innovation, you know, a Bill Gates or somebody. You could argue they deserve a good deal more. But the bulk of the people who make these huge amounts of money now uh, don't do anything but, you know, shuffle paper around and create exotic instruments of financial instruments, as they call them. And, uh, uh, you know, like there's sort of people who uh, cut up mortgages and rebundled them and all that, uh, creating some of the conditions for the 2008 collapse. Um, You know, they don't do anything. Uh, The novel Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe in 1987, there's a great thing in there where the, um, the broker, uh, who is the main character, uh, his daughter says something about, well, some of my friends' fathers do this and others do that. Uh, what do you do? And he couldn't really answer. And then his wife said, uh, well, basically, uh, other people bake cakes and people like your father pick up the golden crumbs. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought that hit it well. The trouble is now, In more recent years, other people bake the cakes and these Wall Street types take most of the cake and leave the crumbs for the people who bake the cake. Mm.
0: One thing I worry about so much now, well, well, there's two sides to this, and I, I don't know if this will be something you have thoughts on. Let me know if not. But I worry now that everything is so framed toward the culture war that almost these pernicious Republican policies are kind of just getting by in disguise. You know, like Paul Ryan did not win the 2016 election like his his views were not even represented in the 2016 presidential election but because somehow you know this con man convinced everybody he was going to give everybody more doctors and healthcare than they could knew what to do with at a lower cost and all this crap that really is it was good liberal promise progressive promises really if the, if it was realistic mm-hmm. and then turned around and and now it's it's Paul Ryan's Country essentially, it's it's and Mitch McConnell, and they're able to enact this, this just the most Republican policy, uh, that really wasn't represented in, in 2016 in any serious way. So, is that is, there's two sides to that. Like, I, I almost hope that I think that if you market this the right way, do you think most people would agree with a lot of these things? They're just caught up in some other politics.
1: Well, I, I mean, uh, Not only did a uh, majority of people uh, vote against Trump um, in in what they call the popular vote, also known as the vote, Um, (laughs) but uh, if you looked at why a lot of people were voting for Trump, I mean, a lot of it was – somewhat irrational hatred of Hillary Clinton and all sorts of other things, but if they were actually actively voting for Trump, especially the people like in the upper Midwest states that uh, put him over the top in the Electoral College, these are people who are hard-pressed by uh, economic changes, and they were certainly not voting for what has been happening in the Trump administration. Uh, yeah. The only people who would vote for what's happening in the Trump administration were people like uh, Trump's billionaire friends. and. Um, he (laughs) he said before the, uh, uh, tax bill was passed. Oh, this is going to be terrible. All my <laughs> all my rich friends are going to uh, be against me. And yeah. uh, believe me, I'm not going to make anything out of this. And then after it was passed, he went to Mar-a-Lago and told his rich friends, oh, I did so much for you. You're going to be so much richer than you were before. Um, so, I mean, of course, he lies every time he opens his mouth. And the people that he misled uh, don't want this sort of thing. It's obviously not going to help them. Uh, they may get their dollar 50 a week some of them may get a little bit more than that for a while but it's not going to help them the coal industry isn't coming back the jobs aren't coming back and it was just all a pack of lies and you kind of understand why some of them would fall for it because they're desperate but you'd think at some point they would wake up and realize they had been had
0: yeah how worried are you right now about a about a serious depression style crash
1: well, I'm not losing any sleep over it in the near term. What I am much more worried about is uh the American Republic being destroyed by the uh, the would be tyrant and uh, uh the rule of law ending and going against all the constitutional checks and balances and uh the vast majority of Republicans, especially in the House, just going along in lockstep with him. Uh, I think uh, while the economy is in danger some uh, probably some years down the line, I wouldn't venture to predict how many uh, the The Republic, the whole American system, I think, is in danger in a in a shorter term if uh, Trump were to uh, get away with uh, either firing Mueller or uh, somehow uh, Mueller comes out with his report and the Republicans won't do anything about it. Um, we would we would be in a lot more trouble than worrying about an economic collapse.
0: Mm, well, that that's interesting. That's my prediction, by the way. My prediction is he does come out with a report, and it, it doesn't directly have the the—the you know, the phone call to Putin any, or anything like that, and it just implicates some people in his administration, and Republicans do nothing about it. That's my mind.
1: Well, I think uh, I think he'll come out with more than that, whether there's the direct phone calls or not. He has access to all these financial records, and there's absolutely no question oh, that yeah. Trump has been deeply involved with the Russians in that, and so that will at least come out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is I, I, This might border on the financial advice, like fiduciary advice, but does history <laughs> teach us anything about what can all us little people out here who don't have control over all, any of this Is is there anything we can do to protect ourselves? Is there anything we should be doing?
1: Well, as you say, uh, that is a, a form of advice that, uh, <laughs> if if I could uh, tell you what the stock market was going to do, uh, oh, of course, uh, it yeah. wouldn't be in my current, uh, current economic situation. I, yeah, but. I don't mean that. Yeah, I
0: don't mean no. that, but I mean, is there, is there a type of person who did better than, than not in, in these past crashes? I mean, is it, should we, should we be careful not to have too much debt? Should we, you know, is there any general thing like that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, not, not that many of us who preach, uh, not having too much debt, actually <laughs> practice what we right. preach, but obviously too much debt is a is a really bad thing. The thing is that you you need government policies that that will deal with this mm. um, one way i I have been putting it for a number of years and have written a few articles uh, about this is that um, the one that I did was was called just a spoonful of quote unquote socialism helps the capitalism go up and the basic <laughs> idea is that um Winston Churchill, quoting someone else, I believe, said in 1946 that democracy is the worst of all possible political systems, except Except for every other political system anybody's ever thought (laughs) of. Right, yeah. And I think the American founders uh, understood something like that without putting in those words and set up a system. They they were very leery of democracy. They knew it had these tendencies— That we've just been seeing uh, for some sort of a demagogue to take over and do things to get out of hand. But they believed that every other type of system was worse. And so they set up a system that was based on democracy, but tried to create these checks and balances to uh, ward off the real dangers inherent in democracy. And I think uh, the proper economic policy be based on a similar idea. That is, capitalism is the worst of all possible uh, economic systems. And I always hope somebody doesn't uh, cut off the recorder right there. Uh, <laughs> all right, we're out of time. <laughs> Got to get noticed. <laughs> Except for every other economic system yeah. anybody's ever thought of. And so we need a basically capitalist system. However, we need to recognize that just like democracy has inherent it all sorts of dangers of going off the deep end, that there are very clear inherent dangers in unregulated capitalism, and so we need the equivalent of the checks and balances that the founders put in the Constitution, regulations that will um, keep some of those excesses from getting out of hand. Uh, Of course, when it comes to regulation, you can certainly have too much regulation, and people can differ over how much, but the idea that we don't need significant regulation that we can just let the economy go wild um is not going to be in the best interests of the majority of people.
0: Yeah, it seems to me, I mean my opinion is that I, you know, I, I still would say I believe in capitalism. I think it's it seems easy to say markets can do incredible things without having to say, okay, therefore we need to worship the totally unregulated extreme of a market. You know, I I where do you stand on, I mean, do you Do you think of yourself as any sort of socialist or democratic socialist or, you know, Bernie Sanders type? Yeah,
1: I would consider myself a democratic socialist, uh, um, depending on how you define it. I mean, basically sort of the Scandinavian uh, approach that... that, when it comes to things like health care, that that ought to be a human right, not something that um, uh, goes to those who have enough money to pay for it, um, regulating the, the price of uh, prescription medicines and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, but continuing, as the Scandinavian countries do, to have a private enterprise, uh, higher taxes, maybe some of them have taxes that are too high. But if you look at um, all the surveys that are done year after year of uh, which countries in the world uh, the people are happiest, you find Denmark and Norway in these uh, uh, countries there. The people aren't happy because uh, the sun shines that much, (laughs) Uh, but they are happy because they they don't have to worry about uh, the sorts of things that, that we have to worry about here, and that doesn't mean at all that the government owns everything or even very much it just means that the uh, uh the excesses that are inherent in capitalism which you're still keeping as the basic system uh need to be kept under control by uh, carefully thought out government actions
0: yeah yeah man well i, I short of uh of of an election uh, a sweeping takeover of congress in 2018 which isn't really possible in the senate um i'm not sure what what else we can do it sounds like individually there's not much we can do and we need to rely on on better policy
1: well the thing that the thing we can do is uh what the resistance is trying to do and uh get people to actually come out and vote and i'm not so sure i'm I'm sort of a congenital optimist all the evidence to the contrary notwithstanding but i think um If you look at at what's been happening in these elections along the way in recent months, and there's just this one uh, in Missouri in a uh, state legislature district that had gone, I don't know, something like Trump won by 26% and the Democrat won uh, uh, the other day by 4% or something, these huge swings. And a lot of this is simply due to people who normally don't vote in these kinds of elections coming out. And so, if it, and, and particularly women coming out, and that's one of the one of the very hopeful signs that uh, what Trump has done uh, by being such an extreme misogynist and the total outrage of somebody like that being elected, and then the policies have mobilized women as as we've never seen before. And this was clear in Virginia and Alabama, and uh, uh, the number of women who were running there's 350 give or take. Uh, um, women running for, uh, uh, seats in Congress, uh, and they're voting in much larger percentages. So I think that a lot more of these even Senate seats may be within reach, particularly if more of the evidence, uh, of just how deeply Trump, uh, has been involved in financial corruption and dealing with the Russians, uh, comes out. Now, of course the 33% or whatever of his base who, uh, get their information from Pravda that is uh, Fox News (laughs) will never even know about it but uh, if the two-thirds who do know about what's going on uh, actually get motivated enough and go out and vote I think the Democrats taking over the House uh, in November is a fairly likely thing and I wouldn't rule out the Senate. Of course that's not going to give you two-thirds of the Senate to uh, uh, actually remove them from office and impeachment but um, if, if things uh, are shown to be bad enough, uh, enough Republicans might come around to do that.
0: Yeah, that's that's the hope. That's the best case scenario. But in some ways, it's sad that it takes this level of corrupt uh, ineptitude and, and just all all the things Trump is to motivate us this much. Because really, as as we were talking about earlier, it's not even—of course, Trump is awful and he's doing a great amount of harm, but the Republican status quo under a, a I guess like normal non ridiculous uh con man president is still awful and it's still something that we need to to move against and resist but it it almost seems like it it we had to be shocked into it.
1: Yeah, we did and and uh to me maybe the most incomprehensible thing of all is how so many republicans are just willing to to go along with him and by the account of all sorts of news people who talk to uh, senators and members of the House, Republicans uh, off the record, say that so many of them say that, you know, he's an absolute evil idiot and they can't stand him. But in public, they continue to support him, and the reason is that uh, they're afraid that uh, there's enough people in their districts who are blind followers of Trump that if they oppose him, they would lose their party's nomination, and they apparently are more concerned about keeping their office than they are being patriotic and saving America.
0: Well, but I also think it's that they're getting everything they want, though. I mean, they, they he decided he was going to be a, a pen, that he's just a pen for—, for... Uh, McConnell and Ryan. I mean, he's just going to sign whatever the the most Republican possible policy that they want. I really think that turned it around for some of the Republicans that seem to maybe be be standing up to him.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Although a lot of people thought that the main thing that they uh, wanted was this tax bill. And that once they got that, they'd be less supportive. But that doesn't seem to have happened. I'm not yeah, sure that's true. what other things they want to do to. Uh, oh, they still got to take uh, away all
0: our health care. There's still that. To, right. There's yeah.
1: still that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's saying that uh, I, th- I think he said in the State of the Union something about he wanted to bring the price of prescription drugs under control. Yes. Reporters who covered Lyndon Johnson used to say you can tell a lot about him from his mannerisms that if he pulls on his earlobe, he's telling the truth. If he smooths down the hair on the back of his head, he's telling the truth. If he puts his finger beside his nose, he's telling the truth. But if he moves his lips, he's lying. (laughs) And, uh, that was, that was largely true of Johnson. It's totally true of Trump.
0: Yeah. It's pretty easy. He's, he's lying all the time. And when he says, believe me, that's a, that's a good (laughs) thing. Somehow I'm not convinced. Yeah.
1: I, I, I know words. I know lots of words. Well, yeah. the the only words that he uses that are really correct uh, uses regularly are is always saying unbelievable and incredible and literally everything he says is unbelievable and incredible.
0: Well, that's uh, about a good time. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to be sure to to mention to to make sure we all have the the right historical framework to think about this kind of stuff?
1: Well, I don't I don't think so. On these things, I can. Uh, Go on for hours and hours, but I think I think we hit most of the main points.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, Doctor Robert McIlvain, thanks so much for coming on the show and uh, putting some of this stuff in historical context for us. I'm worried, but I hope maybe uh, I, some of your maybe I can borrow some of your optimism to get through the day. It helps. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anywhere you want to point people to, to find you or your work online or anything? Books you want to plug?
1: Yeah, you you can just uh, use my name and find all sorts of things on the internet, including articles and books. And um, so that should do it.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Enjoyed talking with
0: you. A big thanks to Dr. Robert S. McIlvain. That was very interesting. We've got a lot of work to do, even if we can take power. Of course, by we, I mean Democrats. I know, I guess everybody, not everybody listening is Democrat, but speaking as someone who thinks the country is indeed headed in a horrible direction, the only answer is uh, to vote. Get out there. It's It's always, it's going to be a theme forever until we fix this. Vote, vote, vote. And indeed, after we fix this, Vote, vote, vote. Keep voting. It's the only way to make it happen. If we can keep this energy up through the 2018 midterms and through the 2020 election at a minimum, we can we can do our best to turn it around. That is pretty vital, though. I think the youth movement we've seen with the, with the shooting and all that, I think that has been encouraging the, to see those voices, and, and I think there's a, a tremendous amount of energy there, but we have to keep it up. It's up to all of us. All right. That's my show. Hey, make sure to check out Philosophers in Space if you haven't already. There's going to be a new episode out for non-patrons very soon. For patrons, they have all kinds of episodes out. Uh, they're ahead. So check that out. It's a really good show. It's If you want a place where you don't have to talk about politics and Trump and all that stuff, if you want to just talk about some really cool sci-fi and some philosophy, check out Philosophers in Space. It's really fun. Search for it on iTunes or whatever. But with that said, thanks for listening and I'll see you guys on Thursday.